Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown, a podcast about love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak, and today's episode is a thrilling and sometimes frightening look at sex toys, past, present, and future. And unsurprisingly, the story of sex toys is full of stigma, false advertising, and politics. But today's guest is the perfect tour guide. Hi, my name is Hallie Lieberman, and I'm the author of Buzz, A Stimulating History of the Sex Toy. I am obsessed with Hallie's book so much. It's not just about sex toys. It's about culture and religion and women's liberation and disability rights and so much more. In reading Hallie's book, I learned that sex toys are older than writing and the wheel. I mean, whoa. And hilariously, I just read an article about monkeys making sex toys. And I was like, yeah, that tracks. It's basically the first important invention a species can make. Anyway, as we talk through this brief history of sex toys for humans, we're going to touch on Japanese Shunga, Anthony Comstock, Betty Dodson, and Gosnell Duncan. So put your vibrator settings on high, privates, and let's get buzzing. Well, I'm so excited we're having this conversation. I freaking love your book. And we actually did an episode about vibrators and we cited a bunch of stuff from your book already. So I guess let's start with, I mean, you got a freaking PhD in sex toys. (laughs) How did you decide to do that? And are you the only person with a PhD in sex toys? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as far as I know, like at the time I was the only one, like who knows, maybe they're like hundreds of people who've done it since, but it's doubtful. Um, (laughs) But yeah, how I decided I wanted to dive in was I uh, started selling sex toys in 2004 in Texas, where sex toys were illegal. Did you catch that? She just said in 2004, sex toys were illegal in Texas in the 2000s, less than two decades ago. I work for passion parties, in-home sex toy parties. You come in, you got a bag full of dicks. You're like, hey, buy this, buy that. It was a multi-level marketing scheme, to be (laughs) honest, with dildos as the objects you are selling. But what was fascinating when I worked there was since selling sex toys was illegal, if you said what the purpose was, I would have to use euphemisms. I, I was trained, don't use the word vibrator, use the word massager, don't say clitoris, use the word man on the boat, the term, ridiculous. <laughs> and I tried to do it the first time. I was like, oh, rub your man on the boat. And then I'm like, this is fucking absurd. And it was a bunch of nurses who were in the audience and they were like, what are you talking about? So I like broke the law immediately. 
So that's how I got started. I was like, why don't we have these laws? It's 2004. What is wrong? The law got repealed in 2008, but still in Alabama, we still have an anti-sex toy law. It's nuts. That shocked me. I like couldn't believe that in this century there were still, and it, it wasn't just Texas. Like it's, it's so crazy. There were eight states. And as you know, with Roe v. Wade, we're going backwards. And in fact, the um, privacy laws that the Supreme Court was talking about, the 14th Amendment, that was used to overturn anti-sex toy laws. So we might be seeing these come back. I mean, there's a war on porn right now as well. It's so awful. Okay. Well, we're going to get into all this stuff and the politics and stuff. But one of the things that I loved was you went to the Smithsonian and you like studied sex toys there. So I guess give us the highlights of like the cool places you got to go and like things that you discovered in your research. Yeah. Well, the Smithsonian was so fun. I got this uh, fellowship to research at the National uh, Museum of American History. And unbeknownst to me, it was huge controversy that they had given it to me. And they were scared that speaking <laughs> of politics. You can't get away from it when you study sex toys. They were scared conservatives would find out and there'd be all this whole thing. But anyway, the National Museum of American History is considered like America's addict. And so literally they have these climate controlled rooms full of stuff, stuff they don't put on display. And the most exciting thing, and I talk about this in the book, is going up into one of the, like the eighth floor and we were on this hunt for a butt plug, which was considered a rectal dilator. And we're looking everywhere. Everything I saw, because I see I see sex toys everywhere. Anything like vaguely phallic, I was like, oh, it's like a um, flashlight. And be like, ah, there it is. <laughs> and so we found this rectal dilator that was over 100 years old. You know, I'm there with the archivist. She's holding it up. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. She's like, yeah, we're never putting this on display. But like, you can use an image of this for your book. So there were moments like that that were incredible. Um, that was one of my best moments. Yeah, I mean, I went to the Kinsey Institute. I watched old stag films from 100 years ago where people, you know, are wearing strap-ons. Well, those weren't 100 years. Those were like 60 years and having sex with each other. It was like the secret, you know, every everywhere I went, I was looking for this little piece of sexual history because it told this bigger story about women and men and gender relations in America. Yeah. Just on a nerdy side note, like what are the best archives? So the best archives are Kinsey Institute in Bloomington, Indiana. That's Alfred Kinsey, the famed sex researcher, sexual behavior in the human male, 1948, biggest sex survey of all time. Um, then sexual behavior in human female, 1953. So they have in their public university that has caused so much, so many issues for them. But you go there that is just brimming with, you know, dildos are cataloged, okay? Um, <laughs> it's amazing. They created like new, you know, Dewey Decimal System or whatever for that. <laughs> just so the, one of the biggest collections of porn movies in the world, erotic art. I mean, sex toy catalogs everywhere. You know, I saw marital aids catalogs from 1950s and yes, they were called marital aids because the idea that you would use these if you weren't married and if you were single, no, no way. That's too threatening. This is what your husband would buy for you because he was impotent and this was pre-Viagra and he would strap it to his flaccid penis and fuck you with it. And it was all very 1950s, the guys in a suit. And the, I mean, it was just, it was just these insights. So that's one of them. Um, Cornell University, really? Human Sexuality Collection. Are you in New York or? 
No, I'm in LA. Okay, I was going to say you can drive down there. But anyway, they've got an amazing collection, Dell Williams from Eve's Garden. So those were the, those are the biggest in the country. And then Smithsonian, um, which like there are a lot of archives where it's like, oh, I wonder if they'll have sex toys and you just have to dig and you'll find them. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. You, if you want to find dildos in American history, like you just squint and, and look, you know, close enough, you find them. <laughs> okay, so let's go through a brief history of sex toys. Obviously, I mean, I highly recommend your book and we'll get into the gender stuff too, but I, I learned so much. But let's go back to the beginning because I could not believe sex toys have been around longer than riding in the wheel. Mm-hmm. It's nuts. That's how important they are to human history. So like, what are the early ones that you identified? Yeah, so they're like these stone tools that were considered spear sharpeners from like 30,000 years ago um, that were found in Germany um, in these caves. Those are kind of the oldest ones, or a lot of their phallic batons. And they find them actually in many different cultures 30,000 years ago. And, you know, it was male archaeologists who found them initially, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're sharpening spears. But like, there's no reason, like, we don't sharpen spears on dildos, objects today. I mean, like, knife sharpeners aren't shaped like cocks today. They should be. That would be amazing. I would own knife sharpeners, but it's just, it doesn't make sense. So, yeah, they go way, way back. We don't know how they're used because, as you mentioned, it's before writing, you know, and even when we have writing, do people write about masturbation? I do. I'm even an anomaly in the 21st century. Very right. few people do. So, yes. Some of them were ceremonial. Ancient Greek times, you see them on vases and, you know, they're carrying like a basket of dildos. It's my favorite illustration. Um, some <laughs> were used for that. There's, so there were other non-sexual uses. But I mean, in Lysistrata, they talk about using dildos. Mm -hmm. Women go on a sex strike and they say, hey, you know, we're not going to fuck our men, you know, unless they come home from war, unless they don't have the war. So we're going to use dildos uh, instead. So, yeah, uh, there's just like such a rich history. It's amazing. And then I was surprised. We went to Tokyo for one of our trips Ooh. for the podcast recently, and it was yes. amazing. But Japanese culture is really cool. And I thought it was interesting that in the book, you know, as we're getting, I can't remember, correct me, 16th, 17th century, they were way cooler about it than any of the European shit that came before it or whatever. <laughs> yes. So yeah, 17th century, 18th century, you have Shunga, which is pornography and sex toys. Absolutely. So they had the pillow books that women were given and couples were given when they got married. And they would have these beautiful illustrations of what you would do in the bedroom. And they would have sex toys in there. And they'd be like, yeah, here are like, you know, toys. And they would have illustrations of them. Um, which was awesome. And then they'd also have candy you're supposed to eat. I mean, like, this is like, I love candy. So I'm like, yes, amazing. So they had those kind of things. And then they also had illustrations of women wearing strap-ons in some of the shunga. And it was like, what? And they also had, you know, sex toys are used to like parody political regimes. And they had that back then where they had this whole thing about making fun of samurais and using uh, dildos to do so. I mean, and now we have the Donald Trump butt plug. I think I've seen a Biden butt plug, but there's just nothing like that exciting about a Biden butt plug. I don't need it in my life, you know, <laughs> but like, but anyway, throughout history, we have, you know, used them for that kind of thing as well. But they had like kind of a tongue in cheek or like they knew that it was 
funny and kind of like less shameful, it seemed like, than other cultures? Oh, absolutely. Like they used the word toy. They were the first culture to use the word toy. There's a Japanese word that meant toy and it was about fun and it was lighthearted. And it's interesting because you just went to Japan. Japan has this rich, I mean, Hitachi magic wands from there. Uh-huh. They've got this rich porn culture, which I love. I was just watching Japanese porn yesterday. Um, and <laughs> I my mom's always like, tell me when you're on podcast. I'm like, oops, I forgot to send you a link. Um, but anyway, and it's fascinating because they got like really so much more creative than our porn. It had like fuzzy dice, game shows, all this stuff. But then they fuzz out the genitals in their porn. Which is a really like, it's, it's a weird culture. I don't know if you looked into the porn culture when you were there, but. Not that much. We did a lot of like interviewing a sex worker. And oh. I got a happy ending massage. Like oh that kind God, of I stuff. I got one too. Wait, <laughs> like from a man or a woman? From a man. <laughs> that, oh my God. That, what, did you like it? Yeah, it was incredible. And honestly, it made me, and this is like embarrassing to admit, you know, I think of myself as sex positive. It's not like I was like hating on guys that got happy ending massages, but I maybe like didn't get it in the way yes. that I got it after I had one. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this is something else entirely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what was your experience? It made you empathetic. That is awesome. No, mine as well. Mine was in Berlin where it's legal. And I really enjoyed it. And yeah, it made me understand why men go to happy. I mean, it made me mad from a feminist point of view that they're not easy to access for women in the U.S. Yeah, first off. truly. But I really liked it, except for mine was very like zen and like, ooh, like we're going to, you know, like some Eastern spirituality shit. And I'm like, I don't need that with my masturbation. Thank you. Like, <laughs> I don't have that in my regular life. I don't need that in my paid life. But uh, so that part I didn't like. But great massage. He had chocolates afterwards. Oh. Did you get that or? He brought like a gift bag full of sex toys. (laughs) Not for me to keep, but that's what he was carrying around in. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And then we both showered at the beginning. I don't know if, if that's like customary everywhere, but we both showered and then did the massage. To be totally honest, he was like offering full service for free. And I was like, please just stick to the deal. <laughs> oh, wow. Amazing. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was it just totally opened my mind about sex work. And again, I was already pro sex work, but it just made me understand it differently and kind of open relationships, too. It was weird. Well, and was this at a host club? Like, did you go to any of the Japanese host clubs when you were there? We didn't go to a host club, but we went to an S&M bar. Ooh. And they were doing shibari. And it was, and we also couldn't keep track of like how much we were drinking because the hostesses (laughs) kept wiping off the glasses. So we were like, I got really drunk. You can actually hear in an old episode. (laughs) Oh my God. That is awesome. Hey, privates. Privates with penises, I'm talking to you. (laughs) Our sponsor, Fleshlight, can help you reach new heights with your self-pleasure. And that is because Fleshlight is the number one selling male sex toy in the world. And they don't just leave you hanging over there. At Fleshlight, you can explore sex toys with expert guides and advice, especially if you're a beginner or you're looking to level up. 
If you have been listening to this show for a while, you know how I feel about self-pleasure and it is very, very good. And I definitely endorse using sex toys. I have a lot of fun with sex toys myself. So with the Fleshlight Girls series, you can embrace your wildest porn star fantasies with a different porn actress every night. What? With the variety of models, sensations, and intensities, you can live out limitless fantasies. And you can automate your fantasies with a universal launch that fits most Fleshlight products. With its innovative touch control system, just set the controls, sit back, and enjoy. And you have pleasure right in your hands. Your pleasure is in your complete control. And as the ultimate male pleasure device on the market, it's as versatile as you are anatomical, stamina building, vibrating, or made for couples, you name it. You define your luxury moment. And I just want to say, if you have any shame around sex toys, please don't. It is so much better than being weird with girls because you feel kind of desperate or whatever. Fleshlight just allows you to chill out, wait for the right girl when she comes, and in the meantime, you know you are going to be getting yours and having a good time. So you don't even have to sweat it. And right now, Fleshlight is offering Private Parts Unknown listeners 10% off your order with our code PRIVATE10. So you just go to ppupod.com. That's the website, ppupod.com. You click Fleshlight and you use the promo code PRIVATE10 to get 10% off your delicious new device. Again, that is ppupod.com and enter code PRIVATE10 And it really helps support the show. It helps support yourself and your own sex drive. So go ahead and use the link in the episode description. We can all be horny together. We can keep this podcast going. So get yourself a flashlight and get yourself off. Okay, so coming to America, you know, you said marital aids, the sex toys in early America. It's like we're not talking about them openly and can you explain like how they were advertised how people thought about them how they fit into our culture yeah absolutely so i mean we have um and sex dolls are included in this but we have uh sex toys in our culture like in the 1800s is when you first start seeing them in rubber goods catalogs and these are like goodyear rubber company was around then and they would have (laughs) things in their catalogs and it'd be like, they'd look like dicks, but not, you know, not like we think of a dildo today with like these intricate, like veins and balls. It's like, it's like a, um, streamlined phallus. And it'd be like, oh, this is a rectal dilator or rectal device, whatever, or vaginal device. So they'd have things like that. And we had this health thing that's for uterine massage, blah, blah, blah. It was not like, hey, ladies, here's your dildos, like, enjoy. (laughs) Because we had anti-obscenity laws. You could get arrested. In fact, rubber goods manufacturers, a lot of them were making condoms. So after the vulcanization of rubber in the mid-1800s, rubber was a better material and could be used for condoms because before then it would crack when exposed to cold temperatures. Mm -hmm. It would melt when exposed to heat. It was not stable. So they stabilize it. They do this. And then we have Anthony Comstock, who's this postal inspector, vice inspector. He goes after rubber goods companies all over the country in the late 1800s, even when, so some of the dildos were marketed in like a rubber goods catalog, like Goodyear, it would be just like, you know, rectal dollar, whatever, in the back of men's sporting goods publications, it would say widow's delight, widow's friend, bachelor's friend, or a vagina. Yeah. So he would go after those companies. And 
Side note, a lot of these, Anthony Comstock was kind of an anti-Semite, which people as a Jew, you know, Jews are, I don't know if you're Jewish, but. I'm not. Okay. That sucks. (laughs) It does suck. um, But Jews are always looking for anti-Semitism all over the place. I say that (laughs) speaking as a Jew. So I'm like, I'm like, I don't want to like overstate this. But then I look and he's like, that sneaky Hebrew was selling sex toys. And then he like. So this guy, I think he was a Hebrew at a big nose. Like he was going after, like he arrested oh. a lot of uh, Jews, a lot of Italians. So there was, because it was about promoting Christianity and Christian lifestyle, and that didn't involve sex toys and masturbation. And he thought Jews were part of that. But anyway, so yeah, that's how they were in culture in the 1800s. You have a hand-cranked vibrator at the end of the 1800s. This is before electricity in most places. Some places had it. You had some battery powered. And when we talk about battery, we're talking about like a Tesla size battery, like huge, <laughs> huge batteries that you're plugging in. And it's like not, it's not like today. It wouldn't be innocuous. You couldn't be like, I'm going to quietly like masturbate with this giant like battery and device Like you're not bringing on a trip. So yeah, so we have those. And then we have vibrators that are coming in. Once things get electrified, it's one of the earliest uh, appliances. Okay, so let's talk about Anthony Comstock for a second, yeah. because his impact has been brought up on the show before, and it's like sweeping and it impacted decades. Can you kind of explain the impact of that a little bit? Yes. So first off, I want your listeners to get an image of this guy. This guy is overweight. He's got mutton chops and a frown. I've never seen him smiling, and he's thrilled at burning like documents, burning sex documents, destroying sex. This is, this is a guy we're talking about. I imagine him as like Alex Jones of like 150 <laughs> years ago. So he was, it's horrible. Yeah. Um, so he believed sex toys were terrible. Also abortion. So the same law that he had to so the Comstock Act, 1873, it outlawed ads for sex toys, outlawed ads for abortion, outlawed pornography. All of this was intertwined. It was sex work too, I think. Yeah, prostitution as well. Thank you, sex work, um, which they wouldn't have called it then. But yes, that's the right term now. Anything, he was looking for anything that was non-procreative, non-marital sex, non-straight sex. And so that's how this all fit together. It was like, you should have sex to make babies. You should be a man and a woman and a couple. You should not masturbate. You're ruining your life. You're... (laughs) spilling the seed, owning, all that stuff. So this had this huge impact because these anti-sex toy laws remnants stayed for 100, 100 years, maybe even more. And we see the impact even today of the anti-sex toy laws we have on the books. And the connection between sex toy and abortion, which is the same thing with 14th Amendment that I mentioned previously, so this intertwining of that and sex work, which, I mean, right now in our culture, we have a war on abortion, if you want to call it that, and against sex work and against porn. Mm-hmm. All of this stuff is connected and has been for 150 years. That's thanks to Comstock. That's how wide ranging. I mean, I mean, contraceptives, it wasn't legal to buy a contraceptive if you were unmarried until 1972, 100 years from the Comstock law. So messed up. So, I mean, that's when the 60s and 70s are when some of this stuff started to come undone a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, well, okay, so you have vibrators, but I mean, just to rewind a second. So vibrators in the early 1900s. 
are everywhere. They're advertised in the New York Times. They're advertised in Chicago Tribune. <laughs> um, now, they aren't advertised the way you would think now. They're like, oh, it can cure sciatica. It can cure deafness, blindness, caked breast, which was whatever that was, obesity, indigestion, everything. And, you know, and it was just like women wearing low-cut, you know, blouses in this, which was shocking for the times, and men with like their muscles, you know? So they were, so they were in the culture and widespread and Comstock didn't really go after them because they weren't marketed openly sexually, but you get a brochure and it'd be like, Hey, send away for the vaginal dilator. And it was 150. It was like five times as much as everything else. And it's like, Hey, you can treat your uterine problems with this. So in a way, uh, we were more open about marketing vibrators then than we are today because you can't market sex toys uh-huh. on Instagram and Facebook. Right. Um, the MTA in New York didn't allow it until there was a threat of a lawsuit. Um, but yeah, 1960s, you have people saying, hey, vibrators aren't for your indigestion. They're giving you orgasms. You have Betty Dodson, this pioneer of uh, the second wave feminism who was hated by like all the other radical feminists. I love it. <laughs> It was great because she, she liked the word cunt. I love the word cunt. She called herself cunt positive. People are like, shut up. You're ruining women. She, and she's like, oh, fuck you. You know, she, she didn't take shit from people. Um, but she would have these uh, kind of circle jerks for women. So she yeah. would have these things. Um, they was called liberating masturbation and body sex workshops. And where she would, women would come. They were naked. She would get naked. She would teach them about their genitals because women didn't have education. Women thought that their genitals were ugly. And she would teach them how to masturbate and give themselves orgasms, sometimes using a vibrator. It was amazing. I loved this stuff about Betty Dodson so much. I've been like mentioning it in other interviews. But I loved that she thought masturbation was so powerful that it was like another mode to unlock feminism, which I knew of Betty Dodson. And like, she's even part of modern pop culture. Like she's on that goop show and she does like a version of her old body work workshops. But I thought that was so cool. Yes. So it's amazing. So Betty Dodson was basically like women can't achieve real independence unless they're a financially independent and be sexually independent. And how do you do that? You need to know how to get yourself off. If you can't do that, you're always going to be dependent on a man for your sexual pleasure. Uh-huh. And she said there are a couple reasons why that's a bad idea. One, men aren't necessarily good at providing sexual pleasure. Um, sexual intercourse does not give women orgasms. And two, you might stay in a bad relationship for the sex. Yeah. You need to know how to get yourself off. So then A, and you can also show men how to, or women, how to get, choose bisexual, um, how to get you off. But it was about independence. You're right. It was about, you know, women were sexually dependent on men. And in the culture, that was the only way it was okay for women to have sexual pleasure is if a man was giving it to them. And men, it was okay if they masturbated. I mean, it wasn't great, but it was okay. Mm -hmm. But there was a power in taking that back. And that, yeah, it's an amazing message. Another person I loved from your book was, um, I might be mispronouncing this, but Gussell Duncan. Gussell Duncan, yes. Can you tell us about 
his whole story. And I know you did another project about it. So yeah, share that as well. Yeah, well, Steve Buscemi read the story of Gosnell Duncan for my other project, which was amazing. <laughs> um, he, did, he did an awesome job. But anyway, so Gosnell Duncan was uh, this guy from Grenada, and he was an immigrant. And he had five kids with five different moms back in Grenada. So he comes to the U.S. and he was like actually following this woman, Angela, who was kind of in love with. So he goes to Brooklyn and um, he, he was going to study engineering in Canada. I made this pit stop to see Angela in Brooklyn. They have something going on. He's like, I need to make money. He couldn't find a job there. He went to Chicago, works for International Harvester, and he's working on a truck bed, welding it. It falls on him. Ugh. He, I know it's horrifying because the, the guy before him didn't put the something in right, some sort of, you know, Ugh. issue. He's working the overnight shift, falls on him. He becomes permanently disabled, can't feel anything from the waist down, has months and months of rehab. Um, Angela, he asked her to marry him as he's rehabbing. She says, yes. She's like, this is okay. He's like, okay. Now I need to figure out how to please her, how to still have, because he's a very sexual guy, like how to still have his mm -hmm. sex life. Goes looking for dildos on the market and what he finds sucks. They were so crappy and they were made of, you know, PVC. They smelled like rubber. They were huge. So he was the dark skinned man. Any black dildos, they were all Caucasian flesh. If you wanted a black one, it was like black, like the color of like a tire. It wasn't skin color. Mm -hmm. It was overly large. Um, he couldn't find anything in his skin color. And he said, I'm going to create good dildos in, you know, dark skin colors and in a better material. And he came up with using silicone rubber, which he used in his work on cars. And it was the first time that's been used for sex toys and you know the legacy now silicone's every sex yeah. toy is silicone now he invented that and he worked with an engineer ge to craft these dildos he used his own penis as a model um <laughs> initially classic man he wasn't perfect um because he thought that's what women wanted and he was doing it in his basement in brooklyn he had these vats and i went after he died i interviewed him then Wanted to go up to see him called and he died six months earlier. So I went oh. there and saw his, it was heartbreaking. His niece, sweetheart, she let us come in and we saw these bats and he had been creating them. And he, disabled people across the country, men and women would send him their like architectural designs for a dildo or a butt plug and be like this inch tall, this is the girth. And he would make them and create these molds. So of course they're handmade bespoke dildos. They're very expensive. And he would give sex advice to handicapped people across the country. It was amazing. He was an amazing guy. And he changed the world of sex toys and sex and disability, which we still don't talk about enough and don't have enough resources for. How can people hear the Steve Buscemi version? Um, so it's called Joy Boy. Um, it's paperless podcast by Vespucci. Um, and so it's on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, awesome. Is there anything else in your research process or that you discovered that you were like, ugh, either like totally blew your mind or you just think more people should know about? Well, I just think more people should know about it. it's a general theme, which is like the history of sex toys is super intertwined with the history of men being afraid that they'll be replaced by sex toys. <laughs> and then even, and, and, you know, it's the sphere even goes through today with male sex dolls, which are the technology isn't great, but men are afraid 
you know, like there's a headline, male sex dolls with bionic penises are going to take over the world. And it's like, really? Are they? How? How is that going to happen? Like technology sucks. So anyway, I think that's an important thing. But yeah, now we can move on. No, I loved that you said you're talking about like fake vaginas in the book. And you're like, yeah, oddly, women did not have that fear. (laughs) (laughs) Women know they're more than just like, you know, a sock vagina or whatever, like that bad technology. (laughs) So funny. Okay, so since the book, you've been writing more articles, doing more research. You wrote one recently, Women Explain Why They Buy Male Sex Dolls. So I guess share kind of what you're working on now and any takeaways from that. Yeah. So I, well, my agent told me not to talk about this, but I can't help it. I'm writing a book on um, <laughs> uh, the history of gigolos, um, male sex workers for women. And since we talked about happy ending massages, yes, that's, uh, you know, I've been interviewing gigolos from around the world, but I'm doing a history. So that's one thing I'm working on. That's my big thing. But, um, I also wrote an article called three generations of women who work at a sex toy store in Alabama for narratively in the oldest is 71 and she's very religious and then a 50 and a 32 year old. I am also working on a story on trans men who've had abortions for BuzzFeed news. That's going to be coming out very soon. Um, because you know, everyone was saying, Oh men, if men could have abortions and you know, we'd have different laws. I'm like, men have had abortions. So let's talk about that. And I'm writing one on Asian gay porn stars gay male porn stars and discrimination in the gay porn industry. Oh, you're going to have to come back in the future, especially when the gigolo book comes out, because we got to talk about that. But yes, uh, for the women explain why they buy male sex dolls. Like what were some of the reasons that they gave you? Okay, so some of them and these were sad. Well, one would remind me of Gosnell was that her husband had gotten in this injury and had been disabled and his penis you know, he was physically disabled. His penis couldn't work. And, you know, he said, you could have a fuck buddy, like friend with benefits. And she was like, no, I don't want to do this because they were in their thirties. And she's like, no. Um, and then she started looking into sex dolls. And this is an Australian woman. And she's like, okay, let me save us some my money. Cause these things can cost <laughs> up to $10,000. I know it's crazy. And she bought a sex doll. So that was one reason. Now keep in mind, the sex dolls out there can weigh up to 120 pounds. And that's a lot. And so this woman and other women, they would have to use wheelchairs to get them around or dollies. <laughs> like they, I know, like, it's like, you can't, it's not like, you know, so that was one reason other women had been in abusive relationships oh. and they're like, you know, uh, regular men suck. These were heterosexual women. Well, they didn't say all men. They weren't um, misandrous, but they're just like, I can't pick a good man. So why don't I get a sex doll? I can make it exactly the way I want it. And one of the sex dolls that the woman created, she used her own hair. And because she wanted an older sex doll, she's in her 50s. So she got it like her gray hair. Because like most of the sex dolls look like twinks. And they're for gay men. Um, so she created her own like older and she zaddy. gave it like crow's feet. Yes, like zaddy, zaddy sex doll. <laughs> it was Amazing. And another one was made to look like Eric Northman from True Blood, which I'm a huge (laughs) fan. (laughs) You could do that. You could bring in your celeb crush and be like, make me a Chris Pine or whoever. (laughs) Or Larry David sex doll. They'd be like, no. Actually, that would be really expensive, too, because older sex dolls are more expensive to make. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
So yeah, is there anything else that people should know? I did something on Marjorie Taylor Greene. So Rome, Georgia had their first ever Pride Festival, this little city in Georgia. And she found out there's going to be Drag Queen Story Hour there. So she decided to basically dox the drag queen who was in it, say that he, where he worked. Oh, that's horrible. What his real name was. He got started getting death threats. Um, people in Rome, Georgia burned and slashed a pride flag outside of his work. He worked at a sex toy store. He quit his other job. And anyway, she's like, it's a triumph. We have triumphed. He ended up not performing. They saw a drag show, but he was worried for his own life. They had to have all this police presence. And she declared it a triumph. She's like, we canceled Drag Queen Story Hour. Well, they didn't. It was still there. But anyway, so that's what I've been working on. It's so disturbing. It's like a public elected official basically harassing one of her constituents. I mean, it shouldn't, I think it's illegal. So anyway, that really upset me. Yeah. Okay. Well, to bring it back around kind of full circle on the political note, after having studied so much of the history of this stuff, do you have any predictions about where we're headed next? Yeah. So where, you mean like politically or just like sex toy wise? Just like with sex toys and perhaps the intersection of the politics. Yeah. So what I hope is, you know, we're just getting more and more comfortable with sex toys. I mean, even though you aren't allowed to advertise them on social media, you have people, you know, showing these beautiful still lifes with their, you know, millennial pink background and their vibrator and their apple or whatever and self-care. And, you know, I mean, there are issues with calling it self-care, whatever. That's some sort of progress. But, and you're seeing sex toys in Nordstrom's, you're at least online and in Target. And there is this normalization and you have Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop. And yes, she s- sends a bunch of misinformation out there about vaginal eggs and stuff. That's not perfect, but at least we're talking about them more. Um, but the downside, like I mentioned earlier, is because the 14th Amendment covering sexual behavior, because they're starting to question and say, sodomy laws, maybe those, you know, should come back or whatever, like horrifying things. The security of the legalization of sex toys in the U.S., there isn't complete security. We have to, I mean, we still have that law in Alabama. We have to keep fighting and saying they have a value because right now there's not autonomy for women's bodies, trans bodies, anything but assist head male body, and not always that, in our country. And so we have to guard against this. There are other countries where sex toys are illegal. So there's not necessarily a happy future, but on the the bright side, like, yes, there's some cool new technologies. There's like the womanizer vibrator and air like suction technology. There's, There's so many women in the sex toy field. Now when, you know, I wrote about the history, it was all male dominated. Now we have women designers and creators. And guess what? Sex toys don't look like dicks anymore Um, because (laughs) dicks are not necessarily what women want. So anyway, there's some good stuff as well. Okay, awesome. Well, where can people find you online and stay in touch with you? Yeah, so um, Hallie Lieberman at Twitter and Instagram. I write for BuzzFeed News a lot. I write for a bunch of uh, different outlets. So yeah. Awesome. And everyone should read Buzz, A Stimulating History of Sex Toys. Yes. (laughs) Yay. Thank you so much.
Thanks again to Hallie. Oh my gosh, that was super fun. We have very kindred interests. <laughs> this episode was actually the perfect follow-up to our Vibrators A Brief History episode that we did a couple months ago. So go back and check that out if you haven't listened to it already. And of course, make sure you're subscribed to our Substack. It's just privatepartsunknown.substack.com. But we made it super handy. The link is in the episode description and we send out all kinds of extra stuff based on the episodes. So hop on over there and make sure you're following this show on social media. We are at Private Parts Unknown on Instagram and at Private Parts Un on Twitter. Shout out to Amy Rausch for the bomb-ass theme music. For more about Amy and her music, check out amyrausch.com. That's Amy, R-A-A-S-C-H.com. This episode was mixed by Mike Castaneda of Plastic Audio. We love you, Mike. (laughs) And after enjoying this content, I mean, gosh, you made it all the way to the end. Could I ask you for just a quick favor? Go to ratethispodcast.com slash private and give us a five-star rating and review. It takes less than one minute but it helps other people find the show and it makes us feel so good. Again, that is ratethispodcast.com slash private. Or if you're listening on Spotify, you just go to the upper left-hand corner of our page, click the star button, and then click all five stars. Easy peasy. You're done and you made me feel awesome. Thank you. Until next time, I am wishing you lots of horniness and happiness and good vibes. And by that, I mean solo sex with a very powerful vibrator. (laughs) Bye.